It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today, we have the honor of talking with Nadia Mason. She's a professor of condensed matter physics here at the University of Illinois, and I have to say, one of the rock stars on the Illinois engineering campus. Almost a year ago to the day of this recording, the University of Illinois announced the opening of the $15.6 million NSF-funded Illinois Materials Research Science and Engineering Center, and Professor Mason is the center's director. The goal of the center is to build highly interdisciplinary teams of researchers and students. Professor Mason holds a bachelor's degree in physics from Harvard and a doctorate in physics from Stanford. It is an honor to have you on this campus, and uh, it's an honor to have you on the program. I know we've tried for a while to try to get you on, and, and you're one of the people we, we wanted to make sure we had on when we started the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be talking about the center and about great research. <laughs> so, I mean, I want to first talk, talk out about physics because you know one of the things that uh, you um, and I would guess other f physicists would would have fundamental research is really important so talk about you know what the importance of, of research in the area of physics oh, well <laughs> you're, you're it's, a, it's a funny question to ask a physicist because right. of course to me physics underlies everything right? so you know we're, we're in the College of Engineering here but to me it's appropriate to many of us it's appropriate because physics underlies electrical engineering, computer science, right? We develop transistors that you know, make computers work. And so you know, physics is an area that explores the basic reasons why things work, how electrons interact, um, how particles combine in materials to give them their properties. And so I think it's really important to have a very deep physical understanding of, of materials, of particles, of the things that we use, because that's how we learn to manipulate them. That's how we learn when they fail. You know, that gives us really, in my mind, the deepest understanding of the materials and the, the properties, you know, the behaviors that we use for everything else. Um, you know, I can say that it's, it's interesting because, you know, people, you know, when you sit next to someone on an airplane and you tell them what I do and they say, oh, so you make, you make doodads or something, right? <laughs> and, and I say, I don't. We're, we're really just trying to understand how things work. And then they say, well, what is it useful for? And often the things we do are useful, right? You can, you can understand the basic properties of semiconductors and then those can eventually be used for computer elements. But on the other hand, I think there's a huge value in just discovery and just understanding, both, both for ourselves as humans who want to better understand the world and because of the surprise that happens, right? You're just exploring how things work and then one day you discover something new and that in itself turns out to be life-changing or revolutionary. And that's really something that we want to keep and maintain within all of our sciences, the, the new, the discovery, the, the potential things that transform the future. And physics has been around almost since the beginning of time, really, uh, the, the study, uh, and yet we are continuing to make discoveries. It's, uh, it's really exciting. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, this is, this is why we still exist as physicists, because we don't know everything. I mean, no one in science knows everything. Um, you know, physics starts with the Big Bang, <laughs> with, with the beginning of time in some sense. Um, and it evolves to, you know, the things we look at now. What happens as you get 
bigger? What happens as you get smaller? What happens as you combine things in different ways? And when I say what happens, I mean, you know, how do the, how do the elect basic electronic properties change? How do the basic material properties change? How do we make new elements all together? How do we understand how energy is created or dissipated? Uh, these are really fundamental things that we still don't know about, right? We have so many challenges in today's society, challenges about how to conserve energy, challenges about how to, how to have you know, better food supplies or cleaner water. And I think a lot of these challenges hinge on the fact that we need new discoveries and new materials and more efficient processes. Um, we need to have better understanding to address the challenges that we're facing even now. And you know, we don't have those, and we need the fundamental understanding to get to that. And I think we always will. Well, I want to talk about the center, because as we mentioned on the open, the center is just about one year old. We're going to mm -hmm. celebrate a one-year birthday, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, how are things going? Um, and then I'll ask you to at least break down uh, one of the two um, uh, areas of concentration at the center. Right, yeah, so, so the center is one year old. Um, I'm still, tr I'm tremendously excited about this center. It's, it's been an amazing opportunity to bring together materials researchers in different areas of the university. We have mechanical engineers, we have physicists, we have chemical engineers, we have chemists, we have material scientists, and we're all really effectively working together now to try to solve some big problems, some big open questions in, in fundamental science, which hopefully will lead to transformative change um, that helps society. Um, so, you know, in this past year, we've, we've been developing techniques, we've all been collaborating together, uh, we, have, we have regular meetings where we just discuss with our students, with other faculty, what we're doing, ideas, the way the research is evolving. Um, and I really feel like we've been able to enhance the materials community, which at the end of the day was one of my goals in, in, in leading this center. You know, how do we bring the materials communities together to make something larger than the sum of its parts? Well, that's the exciting thing, I think, about being at the University of Illinois and other places, but I think Illinois stands out in its interdisciplinary research mm -hmm. that you can go across uh, the quad or, you know, in from one building to the other, and you've got projects that sort of uh, really intertwine with one another and, and, and the discoveries that you can make um, and discussions, I'm sure, that happen uh, at places around campus are pretty fascinating. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, to give you an example, in one of the research areas within the MRSEC, we call it Materials Research Center, um, one, of the material, one of the areas is looking at um, magnetic materials, a specific type of anti-ferromagnetic material and how we can switch this. This could lead to much better computer memory, you know, faster switching times, all of these things. But there are just open problems that we don't know. And so we have a team of someone who grows the materials. These aren't, you know, people don't know how to make new materials. We have someone who's making new materials. We have someone who's studying the um, optical properties of the materials. You know, I'm studying the electrical properties of the materials. And we're really all working together on, you know, in, on similar materials and similar ways to try to understand it. But you can see how you really need to bring together all these parts to say, okay, at first I need this. Now I have the electronics, but how does this couple to, you know, the dynamics of it? Well, I need someone who does light to do this. And so now we have, you know, really, um, not just an excuse to do it, but funding, <laughs> which is necessary. We have students and shared students and people who are put on these projects, and we've been able to really start understanding a lot more about it. So um, it's, it's really been great. People here want to collaborate. They're, they're great at collaborating. You know, we, we live close to each other. We like each other. We hang out with each other. And this is a great opportunity to really do even better research together. Well, uh, you know, I think uh, computer memory is always, it always seems like we, we can't catch up to it. Mm -hmm. it. Do you envision a time where flash storage 
there's an infinite number of you know places where you can do it. I know the DNA is is one of those uh, uh, mechanisms where they're they're talking about storing large amounts of data. <laughs> it's it's a funny question because with you know with computers you know we're always getting faster and better. You know I think storage will increase. I think some of the advances we make will be used in future storage and we'll have much greater storage capability than we have now. Um, but as you know, we, we tend to expand our needs as our capabilities increase, right? So, right. you know, before we could store, you know, 10 pictures on a flash drive, and now we, we expect to store thousands of them. You know, at some point we'll expect to store our entire lives in one time on one flash drive, and if we can't do that, we'll be disappointed. I think what's really neat about it is that as our capabilities enhance, we think of new ways of using it. So as we can store more, like I said, you know, what 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 sort of things might we use this for? You know, could you keep someone's entire DNA signature on a flash drive that's then brought with them when they go to hospitals, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, um, could you could you keep you know all all of the records in a way that's easily accessible and searchable that comes up in seconds, so that when you go when you're asked for a piece of information, it's at your fingertips at all times. Um, you know, these are these are just these are just some things that you can think of. But I think that we we we're, we're, we're clever, right? Not us. Us as, as people are clever, and we think of new ways of using our capabilities. And so I think it's really exciting to think not just of using things in the way we always have, but what are the new ways that we can can progress and and um, enjoy things in the future based on the new technologies. So your uh, concentration has been in, in high temperature superconductivity and quantum computing. Talk about uh, the relationship that physics has to these areas. <laughs> well, th these are physics areas, right? right? That's right. <laughs> these are, but, well, um, but, but I think people, maybe they, they don't think of those as physics areas. They right. think of those as computer science, for instance. Right. Um, so, so so superconductivity is really a physics area. A superconductor is a material that can conduct electricity without losing any energy to heat. Um, and so, in fact, the person who discovered the theoretical mechanism behind superconductivity was John Bardeen, who was here as a physics professor at Illinois when he came up with the discovery in collaboration with his students and postdocs. Um, so, um, you know, that understanding of the mechanism of superconductivity required a fundamental understanding of what electrons are doing in materials, how they interact, how they pair up, and how they, um, you know, how they interact over a large-scale material. And so that's, you know, it turns out to be a very simple equation, but something that requires very deep physics. Um, once you, we understood superconductivity, we could try, you know, start trying to make better superconductors. We could understand the limitations, the magnetic field limitations, and now things like superconductors are used in MRI magnets, for example, you know, commercially for all sorts of things. Um, it's a similar thing with quantum computing. Uh, quantum computers are computers that um, use what we call, you know, use this principle of quantum mechanics where things act as waves to allow what we call a superposition, like putting two waves on top of each other creates a new wave pattern. Um, you can do that with computer bits and make a new pattern where the pattern itself encodes the information. And so you can encode much, much more information with just two waves than you can with two particles, if that makes sense at all. And so that's how a quantum computer works. Um, but you can even see from my description of it as waves interfering and all these things that there's a very deep physics behind it, right? In order to think about how waves interfere, in order to understand how you can maintain these patterns and maintain the information without losing it to outside sources is still a fundamental physics problem. Um, and in fact, one of the challenges we have these days is connecting from computer algorithms that might use quantum computing to the actual 
quantum bits that physicists are still trying to make. You know, we still need to connect what are the algorithms, what can we do with this, as opposed to just making one of these bits. And so there's a lot of work, interdisciplinary work, that still needs to be done. Well, at some point, somebody decided silicon was a great uh, way to, to send these signals. Otherwise, it could be it could have been something else, Valley, if you right. will. Uh, but uh, you've worked, I think, with graphene to, to right. as, as another uh, um, you know material. Right. Are, are there talk about that and maybe other materials we haven't thought about? <laughs> you're, you're touching on all my favorite topics today. Right? <laughs> Superconductor is quantum computing, the center of graphene. Um, yeah, graphene is a is a single layer of of carbon. Right? So if you take a graphite pencil and streak it on a piece of paper, you'll get some graphene out, single sheets of these things. And it was isolated um, about 10 years ago, and people could study its electrical and optical properties as a sheet. Um, it, it's really an amazing, it, it's an amazing material because it's ultra thin, but also very conducting and transparent because it's so thin, it's very strong. Um, so, you know, graphene itself is interesting, can be used in composites, can be used in transparent electrodes, for example. But I think what's been even more exciting is in the past 10 years, people have discovered all sorts of other two-dimensional materials beyond graphene. Things like molybdenum disulfide is also a two-dimensional material. They've made you know, superconducting or magnetic two-dimensional materials. And so um, in a sense, what's been most exciting recently and something that we're also looking at, and it's also that we're looking at within the MRSEC, is, is not just you know, you know, there's a discovery of one thing, and then people, it suddenly opens this whole field. Oh, now there's lots of 2D materials that we can study that have different properties that may be useful for different things. And so, you know, while we study the electronics of this and see how we can make better electronic devices, um, we also look as part of the MRSEC at how do you crumple these things? Right. You know, there are 2D sheets, and if you bend them, can you, can you make things that look more like living things in cells? You know, can you couple a 2D electronic sheet to... Um, to something, you know, to cells or anything else, and then have electrodes on it, but also have it be crumplable and integrated with biological things. There's suddenly all these opportunities that open up um, that, you know, that one discovery has led to. And so, um, you know, again, that's a really exciting thing, studying these materials and also seeing what it leads to. Well, it makes a great transition to the other side mm -hmm. of, of uh, the center, and, and that is talking about the, the uh, wearable you know, mm -hmm. electronics right. and, and uh, how it could interact with the skin um, mm -hmm. and, and try to make them, you know, the hard surfaces bendable. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. can you just talk about uh, the, that uh, process? Yeah, exactly. So that's what I was saying that, you know, if you, when we, ha when we think of things that electronics integrate with our body, we think of things like smart watches or phones, right? And yes, it would be nice to have a phone that, you know, that bent into our pocket so we didn't, <laughs> we sat on it, didn't break, or a watch that conformed to us. But even more than that, it would nice be nice to have sensors that, you know, we could barely feel or things that go inside our body with our hearts or other organs that, that really conform to them and integrated them, drug delivery systems that could open and close. Um, to have these things, we need things that are electronically programmable but also are bendable, can conform. And so we've been looking at these electronic 2D materials that are so thin that they can bend easily, they can be crumpled, that you can functionalize and connect to many different types of materials, but that also um, you know, have really good electronic properties that we can program like mini computers. Um, and so this is what the other research thrust of the, of the MRSEC is, looking at how to bend 2D materials and combine them with biological and other things to make new types of devices. Um, and again, this has been a combination of mechanical engineers who focus on bending, material scientists, physicists, chemists, who, and bioengineers who functionalize them. And so it's been a really great collaboration and a lot of fun thinking about new ways of doing these things, right? You really need people from different areas to get these new ideas.
Well, at the beginning, I talked about you as a rock star uh, on uh, in this campus, and I know that there are a lot of others that are they they touch on several areas of what you're talking about. Talk about some of the other people that that are involved, and you know how they fit into the to the puzzle. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have a whole a huge list of people right, in the right. in the Mersec. I mean. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can say you know our two our two leads for the for the research thrust. One of them is is David Cahill, who's uh, who's head of material science, um, and he is one of the world's experts on um, optical and thermal properties of materials. And so he really conceived of this project for the antiferromagnets, um, looking at their their dynamics and really put this team together. And so um, he's he's setting up an entirely new system, optical system, to measure the dynamics of antiferromagnetic systems, something that's really not been been studied before, probed in the same way. And so he's doing this in collaboration with a physicist, Kina Lorenz, who's uh, in the physics department. Um, and the two of them are working together to set up this new system for measuring um, dynamics of magnetic systems. Um, on the other side, um, Arend Venterzand leads the um, the 2D crumpled materials thrust. Arend is a wonderful um, mechanical engineer who is an expert in looking at 2D layered materials, and he's made really interesting discoveries already this year in collaboration with the rest of the team on how to on how to pattern and manipulate 2D materials, how to bend them to see how they slip against each other when you have when you have um, um, multiple layers, for example. Um, and he's worked with um, Hinshane Huang, who's one of the world's experts in microscopy at the atomic scale. And so we have, you know, we, we benefit a lot from the materials research lab and the facilities and resources we have there. And in the lab is a new type of what they call transmission electron microscope that allows you to really individually probe atoms in almost any material, including at interfaces and at layers. And if you can imagine, you're looking at 2D systems, and if you can see what the atoms are doing at every interface, you suddenly have this wealth of information you didn't have before. So Pinchane has been working on that. You know, we have theorists like Aleph Ertekin, who is looking at the dynamics of the slipping in these things, right? So, so these are, you know, we have, we really do have a rock star, you know? It's, I wouldn't say a rock star, we have a, we have a band, you know? <laughs> this is a full, you know, we're, we have, a, we have a, full, a full concert program going on here, right? We're the Lollapalooza of the, uh, you know, of the engineering college at this point. And, uh, and it actually, it's funny, it does feel like that sometimes because we all get together. We just had a meeting yesterday where we, everyone got together and had this quick three-minute slides about everything they're doing from the past year and next year. And it was just so exciting to hear people talk about what they've done, the collaborations they've, for, they've formed, um, about the, the prog progress they've made in understanding fundamentals of things. Um, and so I think that you know, the, the team is, is incredibly strong and, and really exciting to work with. Well, you were busy before the center started. <laughs> what are some of the other things that you're that you're working on, perhaps outside of the center? Well, I have the, can I add one more thing sure. about the center? Absolutely, okay. go ahead. Thanks. One, one more thing I want to add is that you know we we talked a lot about the research at the center, but one of the things that's been really important to me and to other members in the center is that. Um, we have huge outreach and education and collaboration programs within it. And, you know, this isn't, this is, you know, I wouldn't, it's not outside the research. It's what makes the research stronger. And so we have a program bringing in uh, research, for, uh, research experience for undergraduates program. We bring in undergraduates over the summer and they work in our labs. Um, we, we go out to, you know, we had, we were part of Engineering Open House. We have a, a video, we have a, a movie series, a streaming movie that we've, that, that, is, that should come out this fall that we've made that shows, um, has a, a storyline, a story arc based on 
research, but it's supposed to show you know, really the process of research, a variety of diverse students engaging in it, and it's uh, we call it you know Stranger Things meets the Materials Research Lab, and so <laughs> it's, it'll be a streaming four episode you know web thing that we hope will be you know maybe it'll go viral and will interest people, but we're we're really thinking of new ways to engage students, engage the public in materials research, to have them brought into the center, to have people think about the value of not just what we do, but of what you know what fundamental scientists do. You know, we have coffee hours and things. So it's really been a wonderful way to bring people together, not just on research, but really integrating other things that we care about. So. Sounds like it would make for a, a great drama or sitcom <laughs> or whatever. We're, but we're, 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 we're trying, that's right. So that, <laughs> this, this is our first attempt at the drama, right? If that doesn't work, we may move to the sitcom. I know right. that for students in my, in my lab and elsewhere, it sometimes feels like a, a sitcom. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, what, we're all here because we, we like, we love being here, right? We, we enjoy the research. We like the collaborations. We love doing the science. We like thinking about these things with other people. We think it's important and valuable. And, you know, if I can spread that more, if we can spread that more, you know, from to each other, to the outside community, I think that there'll be more appreciation, not just of what we do, but just of what, of things that I think are valuable in life. And I think that's important. So you mentioned fundamental research yes. and, and, and what's going on there. How, how long does it take to get from discovery stage to, you know, you have to prove and then, and then to find the applications that go with it. Can you talk about the timeline? Because it, you know, it's, a, it's, a lot, it's a lot longer than people think from discovery stage to, to when we notice it in society. Yeah, absolutely. It can, take, it can take ages, right? I mean, I can give the example of, of, of superconductors. I mean, superconductivity was discovered in, I mean, in the, you know, the early 1900s. Um, it wasn't explained until the 1950s, 60s, and you know, the MRIs and stuff didn't appear until quite a bit later. So that's, you know, that's kind of 70 years between between finding out that it works and thinking of applications for it. It can be quite a long time. Um, on the other hand, things like um, um, there's a, an effect in magnetic memory called giant magnetoresistance where you can, you can use a magnetic switch to store things. That went from discovery to market in, I think, you know, less than 10 years, an extremely short amount of time. And so it, it, really, it really varies. Um, I think that it's, it's, it is important to remember that discoveries the, the implementation of discoveries can take a long time, right? There's a value in doing fundamental research and discovering the way things work because some number of years later, you suddenly find an application for this and you never know when that's gonna be. But in order to keep making progress, in order to keep making technological progress, we have to be patient with that because the discoveries will drive it. Well, I, I don't wanna um, let you go without just talking a little bit about your background. Um, and, and one of the reasons that uh, we're having you on now, and we've wanted to have you on for, for a number of uh, for a number of months now, but uh, the recently published book, Women and Ideas in Engineering. Just talk about how you got in, how you got interested in STEM, and uh, you know the outreach that you have to other future women in this field. Right. Um, yeah. No, I'm I'm really happy to be here as part of that, as part of you know, publicizing that book. So I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, well, as I mentioned, I've, I've, I'm I like physics because it explains the way that the world works to me. Um, I've always liked math, and I took a bunch of different classes in school and liked physics the best. However, the thing that really got me to stay in physics was summer research experiences where I actually got to do hands-on experiments, engage with it in a different way. And most of these experiences I had were programs that 
um, were specifically for women and underrepresented minorities. There was programs that realized that there were too few of us in the field and wanted to give us opportunities that we might not otherwise have. Um, and so to me, these were incredibly valuable experiences. One, because I did get to go in the lab and get to experience something that it turned out that I loved. Um, and also because I had a cohort of people who you know, were, were like me, had backgrounds similar to mine, other women, under underrepresented mi minorities. And we formed a group of people who really wanted each other to succeed. There was an environment that felt rather different than the significantly male-dominated classes that I had taken up until that point. And you realize that you know there could be a really great supportive atmosphere in a field where you get to do the things you want to do. And so now that I'm faculty myself, it's really important to me to make sure that other people get similar opportunities. Um, you know, it's important to me, one, just to give back because it's something that I benefited from. Also because I think that we're, we don't have enough people in the sciences, enough really good people, people, women, people who are underrepresented, don't enter the field because they feel like they don't belong, because there's bias, because they don't have role models. There's so many reasons that I consider the wrong reasons that people don't stay in STEM, um, that whatever we can do to give to combat those, to give you know to make sure people can go into the field for the right reasons and stay in it, I'd like to help with. Um, and then finally, I just think it's, you know, I, I believe in having equal opportunities. And I think that there are many, you know, when, I'm, when I was in graduate school, I noticed many of my grad student fellows, peers, had parents who were scientists. And yet, you know, there, there are many people who are underrepresented who don't have parents who are scientists. And so I think it's really important to do outreach and make sure everyone hears about what we do, can get excited about it, and can make a free choice as to whether they want to do it with all the knowledge available. And one of the things that I've grown to realize is that the companies or organizations that have diversity yeah. actually function better yeah. uh, and are more, you know, more productive yeah. um, than those that, that aren't. Yeah. Um, and so another great reason to get have, have a more diverse population in STEM. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's been lots of studies that show that when that we are challenged when we interact with people who don't look like us. And it's interesting. It's not even that they have, I mean, definitely when people have different backgrounds from us, we're challenged. But we're even challenged when we're faced with people who don't remind us of ourselves. And when we're challenged, we tend to think more. And so they've done lots of studies showing that people come to better solutions when they are thinking in new ways. And people think in new ways when they're challenged and confronted with others who are not like themselves. Um, and so I think this is a really important reason to have diversity within groups. You know, I, as I said, I, you know, my, the fundamental reason, I think, is that we really need to have equal opportunities for people. Mm -hmm. But when you do have diverse groups, they tend to work better. I also think people just enjoy it more. You know, I, when, I, when I was in graduate school, um, you know, there were, I had a lab of maybe 10 people and there were two or three women. And we all wanted more women in the lab. You know, the men also wanted more women in the lab. They didn't just want to hang out with each other, right? They wanted a group of people who had, you know, who were fun, who, a, a, a group that was interesting, that was diverse, that they could interact with in ways that just weren't always the same for them. And so I think the environment is just much better. One final question. You, you've got your undergraduate on one coast. You've got your uh, um, PhD on another coast, and you wind up here in the Midwest. <laughs> and you've been here for a while. Uh -huh, 13 you years. <laughs> talk about the differences and why you've stayed here at Illinois. Sure. I mean, I, I, I was at sm uh, 
private universities before. This was the first big public university that I worked at. I, I really value working at a public university, for one. I think it, it grabs a larger group of people. It grabs people who, you know, can, can have their first real um, experience, you know, sort of, I don't know how to say it, significant experiences outside of their comfort zone at a place, at a place like this. Um, people from smaller towns who come here and get to study abroad or get to work in a cutting edge research lab. Um, I really value the fact that we're giving opportunities like this here to people who might never uh, otherwise not have it. Um, I also, I, I really like University of Illinois. I, you know, this, this university has an ethos of collaboration, of, of working together, of, you know, we're, we're all in the cornfields together sort of thing, right? And also, you know, we know everybody. You know, we, 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 people we work with, our students, everyone's neighbors with each other. Um, it has almost a small town feel, but within a very sophisticated and, and um, you know, top university. And so I think that makes it not just that we can do better work, but a lot more fun to work. You know, I, I like my colleagues. We hang out. We go out for drinks after work sometimes just for fun, and we talk science. And so I think having – I, I really like being in an environment where I like to do work and I can do great work, and that's what's kept me here all these years. Well, I think our listeners understand why we've really wanted to have you on the program. <laughs> yeah, you, you add a lot to, to the campus – um, you obviously are passionate and enjoy talking about science, and uh, we've got a lot of cutting-edge things that we want people to know about here. So I appreciate you taking the time to be on the program. Well, thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Nadia Mason has been our guest. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our core of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes. 